The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing your nation's public radio source for no-hype real estate investing information. And today is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate Investing, sort of our open mic day where any questions that you have about any aspect of real estate investing, from getting started to managing what you own to finding money to buy more deals to leasing, selling, wholesaling, whatever you'd like to talk about, that's going to be our topic today. You can give us a call with your questions if you're in the greater Cincinnati area at 513-772-9658. If you're listening to us on the web, call us at 877-772-9658 or go to askvina.com, fill in the response form with your question, hit the Ask Vina a Question button and we'll get it here via email. Remember to let us know from where you are writing While we're waiting for the questions that actually make up the show today, hint, hint, folks, there is no show unless you make, unless you ask questions. Also, we'll, you know, take comments, topic suggestions, anything you like at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. The Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati meets this week for one of the final two meetings of the year. It's a great meeting for folks who are looking to minimize their tax bill and increase their retirement income. The early meeting is past RIA President Chuck Vonderhaar, CPA, talking about last-minute tax planning tips, upcoming issues in the tax code that are going to affect you as a real estate investor. That's at the 6 o'clock meeting. At the 7.30 meeting, we are thrilled to have Quincy Long from Quest IRA. He was the guest here on Real Life Real Estate last week. He'll be talking about how to set up and do deals in a self-directed IRA, how to use what you know about real estate to grow your retirement wealth, to fund your kids' college education tax-free, to fund other people's IRAs, to set up a health savings account, basically to you know, do what you already do in a way that's going to benefit you in the future with your taxes deferred or perhaps even eliminated, depending on what kind of IRA you have. That's at the 730 main meeting at Cincinnati RIA tomorrow night. It's at the usual location, the Jordan Crossing at the corner of Reading and Seymour Avenue in the CAA building at the back of the lot. Quincy is also doing an all-day Saturday workshop for Cincinnati RIA for those of you who really want to dig deeply into exactly how you do deals with your IRA or use other people's IRAs to fund your deals. 
You can get more information about that and the main meeting at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's Cincinnati, R-E-I-A dot com or at 859-292-7342. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate Investing, which means no questions, no show. Give us a call with your questions in the Cincinnati area, 513-772-9658, 877-772-9658 is the toll-free number outside the greater Cincinnati area, or you can go to the askvina.com website and get more information uh, to just, you know, you're not going to get more information. You're going to fill in the information you want to know, and then you're going to hit the send button, and uh, we'll get it here in the studio. Um I have a question here from Anthony in Cincinnati that actually came in before the program. Uh, he says, hi, Vina. I read somewhere that your companies give 10% of the, your income away to charity. Do you believe this to be a vital part, somewhat secret to your success? Have you always done it? Is there a reason behind the 10%? I want to be like people who have money. So if that's what they do, that's what I will be doing. I'm hungry for success. Uh, Anthony, the... The the answer to your question is a little bit more complicated than most of the folks who are listening probably think. They probably think, well, she tithes. A lot of people tithe. And that is, in fact, part of it. Uh, my partner and I believe that we should give back some of what we are blessed to have in the real estate business. Uh, we choose our the, we choose where we give the donations based on you know where we see need. Uh, and yeah, that is part of it. And whether whether you happen to believe in the biblical tithing, uh, et cetera, uh, I think that, you know, putting putting back money to people who need it and causes that need it uh, is always a good thing. And we feel very, very strongly about making sure that that is taken care of. In fact, if we have a week where we've had bad cash flow, uh, the tithe goes out before we get paid. That's how strongly we feel about it. Now, the, the other reason for, the, to, for that is um, as sort of dyed-in-the-wool libertarians... I know now everybody's turning their radio off like, oh, she's crazy. Those libertarians believe a spaceship's going to come down and take us all up to some place. No, we're not that kind. We're libertarians just, you know, without all the crazy. We don't believe that it is um, morally correct to object to all of the money that the government is giving away to things that we don't believe the government should be giving them away to. And yet not at the same time support the causes we believe that we should support. So in other words, uh, we don't, we don't think that like people shouldn't be helped. We just think that, uh, the government's role in that should be more limited than it is. And to kind of put our money where our mouth is, uh, we, we do that. We give away 10% of our income so that, uh, we can't, we can't be hypocrites by saying people should be helped, but not by the government, by individuals. Okay. Well, so we're going to be some of those individuals. So probably a more complex answer than you expected. But yes, we do believe it is a very important part of our success, and I strongly encourage it. Uh, let's go to Joe, who's calling on line one from Cincinnati. Joe, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Thank you. Um, I have a question on financing. Uh, obviously, the lenders are uh, all so tight on everything any, you know, currently with all the requirements. Um, I have a, a house that I recently renovated that's worth, Presumably over three hundred thousand. I owe no money on. Um, I have several other properties, which is why my 
available cash flow isn't enough to qualify for a conventional loan. Um, but I've got more than enough equity in that and other assets. Is there someplace a source for, I guess you'd call it non-conventional financing? I've got excellent credit. Uh, I've got a couple houses that I'll sell within the next couple of years. So looking for something, uh, I mean, it's like a 50% loan to value, um, one to three, one to three or five years, even, you know, even a, you know, a short-term loan. Okay, is this is this is this three hundred thousand dollar house your personal residence or is it an investment property? Uh, it's an investment property. It had been my personal residence, but not now. Okay, and you you said kind of in passing that your your the the cash flow would not allow for a conventional loan. Are you talking about the overall cash flow of your business, or you're talking about on this particular property? Uh, on well, this and a couple other rental properties. I'm because of some renovations. I'll have plenty of cash flow in the next year or two. You know that'll have a couple year history. You know with the extra. Mm-hmm. I'm actually a retired uh, government employee, so I've got a pension that's uninterruptible, Social Security that's uninterruptible, plenty of uh, equity. You know, I mean five times over what the uh, what I'd be borrowing. Sure. But yet nobody wants to lend any money. Um, you know they want. You know, they, they take more stock in a one-year lease that the person can walk away from than they do in having the equity <laughs> that can pay it and other assets, too. Sure. I, and and actually, Joe, there's there's a couple of different routes that you could explore with this, okay? The, the, there There is some money out there for what you are looking to do. Unfortunately, given the nature of public radio here, I cannot name names to you about, you know, go to this place and, and check this out. But uh, if you'll send me an email, uh, I will bounce back to you some some places that I think might be willing to do what you're looking to do here. One route is portfolio lenders. There are a handful of lenders. And I mean, it's just a handful. It used to be a lot. And now it's just a handful. Uh, here in the Cincinnati area that still hold their own loans for investment. So like they take the money out of their depositors money, they give you a loan and then you pay interest and that's how they make their money. That's not a conventional loan, which means those folks do not have to follow the quote conventional loan standards, which Mm -hmm. is what's hanging you up on this. Is it, this is, this is, this does not conform. You said it was non-conforming. It does not conform to the standards of a conventional loan, but these are these are smaller banks. They can look at Joe, as opposed to looking at oh well, here's what Fannie Mae requires us to do. They can look at Joe, yeah. and they can look at Joe's uninterruptible income, and they can look at the fact that it's a fifty percent loan to value, and they can make a decision for themselves to say, well, heck, yeah. if we had to take it back, <laughs> actually be a, you know a good day for us. Yeah. So that's one route to go. As as it happens, I used to be a savings loan examiner and. 30 years ago when I started, there were savings loans on every corner that mm-hmm. kept their own loans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even though they were very conservative, um, you know, they never had any problems with them. Exactly, exactly. Grew up and converted the stock and then sold out the bank, so most of them are gone now. Exactly. Or they've, they've, uh, they've gone to doing purely conventional loans because the conventional loans are more or less no risk. For the mm-hmm. for the banks, I mean, what what happens? They make the loan out of the depositors' money on Monday. On Tuesday, they sell the loan to Fannie Mae. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's Fannie Mae's problem now, right? And they just and everybody started chopping them up in the multiple uh, tranches, different hit pieces, and shelling off all the pieces, and uh, people got stuck with what was left over. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we could we could have a discussion for an hour on why Fannie Mae is a is is a big part of the problem in the in the loan market right now. But so one option is one of these two or three remaining uh, local portfolio lenders. Uh, option number two, and it's not going to be a, as attractive from an interest rate standpoint, is you could look at a hard money loan. Now, the 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 advantage of the hard money loans is they're very quick. They require a lot less qualifying. They're they're largely based on the value of the property, as opposed to how much how much is the property leased for, and so on. The downside is you're going to pay twelve to fifteen percent interest on that loan. Mm-hmm. Now that's not that's not when you when you put pen to paper and and work out what that really means. If you're holding the loan for one to two years, it's not that big a deal. If you're if there's a possibility that you're going to still need that loan five years from now, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of in terms of raw dollars you're spending, if it's a relatively short term loan, it doesn't matter that much. If it's going to be a longer term loan, it's going to become a big problem. Uh, again, I cannot recommend specific hard money lenders on the air. I'd be happy to do that if you wanted to send me an email, and uh, you'd send that to askvina at gmail.com. Okay. Okay. Okay, I appreciate it. Yeah, there is a, there is a solution here. You just got to get a little creative with it, okay? Yeah, yeah. I expect to be selling you know, one or a couple of properties in the next couple of years. Anyway, I don't mind paying a little bit extra now, and even the 12%, uh, I... Uh, that's what I paid for the first building I bought in 1980. Yeah, yeah, it a lot. <laughs> yeah. That, that those kinds of numbers um, sound a lot less scary to those of us who were in business in the 80s. <laughs> and, and back then, savers were getting four and five percent on their interest. Uh-huh. Never expected. Did you, I, I now get a, a bank statement that says I get a, a like a quarter of one percent and about uh, twenty cents interest a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. Okay, Never Joe. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Appreciate your question. Yeah, You're listening you. to Question and Answer Week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. If you have a question of any sort about real estate investing, give us a call here at... Uh, now, see, so you guys have the fund drive numbers posted, and I'm going to get confused here. 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Or you can send us an email by going to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Here every Wednesday night at 5 o'clock for like the last 12 years in a row. And uh, we are doing question and answer week this week. So if you're listening and you have some question about real estate investing that you have been meaning to get answered, uh, give us a call at 772-9658 if you're in the greater Cincinnati area. If you're listening to us on the web, 877-772-9658, you can also send an email by going to askvina.com. That's a website where not only is there a question answering form, but there's also a place that you can check and say, I want to receive the free weekly e-lesson from Real Life Real Estate Investing, because each week we send out 
a notification about what our upcoming show is so that you can prepare your questions and just remember to listen. And also an article by or about our guests or their topic. So um, why not check that box while you're there at AskVena.com. Question here from Steph in Boston. She says, what is your opinion on the recent reports that it will take 10 to 15, and then there's a word missing, but I think it should be years, for all of the REO inventory to be sold? Also, is Mr. Drew still with your company? And the answer to the second question is yes. The answer to the first question is, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I know that we have not just the REOs that are on the market, not just the REOs that are in, the, in process, but the REOs that are, for one reason or another, being held off the market by the banks who own them. And I have heard that particularly in places like New York, that there is 10 years worth of REO inventory, meaning at the current rate of absorption, it would take 10 years for all of those properties to sell. However, what we are seeing in much of the country is that some of these REOs have gone so long in the foreclosure process or so long in the post-foreclosure process that they have effectively rotted. They are in a condition where they cannot be renovated by anybody who's trying to make a buck renovating them. Uh, it's extremely common here in our part of the country to see, and in, and in much of the country. Now, Boston would be an exception to that since the lot would be worth something in Boston. But in many in many parts of the country, we are now seeing properties that thanks to the depressed values, are worth fifty dollars to $55,000 fixed up. And that will cost 50000 to renovate. So withholding costs, if you bought that property for $0, renovated it, and then sold it, you would make a negative amount of money. Those properties are being torn down. That is uh, um, absorbing some of the REO stock in a way that I don't think these studies are quite paying attention to. Uh, there are other properties that are out there that are REOs that are abandoned, that have been abandoned for so long that although they are not being torn down because the cities in some cases don't have the money to do that, they will never be purchased and renovated. If you subtract that number from the overall stock of REOs, you're, you're, you're not looking at 10 to 15 years worth of inventory anymore. And furthermore, uh, there is starting to be a pickup in sales. Uh, interestingly, it looks as if that pickup in sales is primarily by investors. There are a lot of folks entering the investment market now who are doing so in order to diversify their investments and particularly their retirement plans into something that is not the stock market and is not a bond fund or a mutual fund with a yield of under 2%. Uh, these folks are not, they're not the professional investors. And by, by that, I don't mean they don't act professionally. I mean, they they have no desire to become full-time investors. They want to own five rental properties, 10 rental properties, whatever they can get on conventional loans. Uh, they want to keep their jobs, but there's a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger mass of these folks coming into the market. And if each one of them picks up five properties, 
uh, clearly we're going to have much less of an REO problem. And I think that's part of part of the reason why we're starting to see prices go up more months than they're going down uh, as of this year. So, no, uh, <laughs> it's too late to make the long story short, but uh, I don't think you're looking at 10 to 15 years worth of REO inventory. I think within uh, probably half that, maybe six years, seven years, everything that cannot be sold is going to be torn down and or, and or just left abandoned and that the investors will pick up the slack. Now, I say that not having any idea what the next silly things the banks will do will be, but that is my guess. And thank you very much for your question, Steph. Question from Robert in Hudson, Ohio. I believe I know the answer to this question, but I will ask anyway just to confirm that what I think is correct. If buying a property that is already occupied with tenant, I must abide by the terms of the existing lease signed between the tenant and the seller of the property, correct? I understand I can screen the tenants again according to my own requirements. What if the tenants do not conform to my requirements? Any other advice you can provide in this situation? Well, Robert, actually, unless the lease has language in it that says that the the lease can be unilaterally terminated upon the sale of the property, which most leases don't say, occasionally you'll find one like that if the if the uh, seller knew he was going to be selling the property when he signed the lease, there may be a clause in there like that, but it's probably not. Uh, you do have to abide by the terms of the current lease. And furthermore, going back and rescreening the tenants under your criteria, that's not going to work. You're not going to be able to, I mean, you can certainly, you can certainly do your rescreening, but to then make a decision about them and say, well, I wouldn't have taken you because your credit does not meet my criteria, although it met your last landlord's criteria, that doesn't matter. You're locked into the lease until such time as it is broken by the current tenants or it expires, at which point if they don't meet your criteria and for some reason you want them out, you can, of course, give them in Ohio a 30-day notice to move. So, uh, yes, basically you are correct. You do have to abide by the terms of lease, and so does the tenant. That's and, and That needs to be made clear to them. I can't tell you how many times I bought a property with a tenant in it and had the tenant move out within weeks of my purchasing the property because somehow they thought that because the property was being sold, they had to move. It's like there's this myth in the tenant community that if your house gets sold, you're going to get thrown out or I don't know, maybe they think someone's, maybe they think you're going to move into it. I don't know what happens, but I make a real effort now when I put a property under contract that has a tenant in it and I want to keep the tenant to let them know things will proceed as they always did. We want them to stay. We, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for great tenants like them. And as long as they keep paying their rent, we'll be good with each other. So you might want to try that as well. Uh, let's see. Should give the phone numbers again. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing Question and Answer Week, which we try to hold the last Wednesday of every month just to pick up all these questions that you folks have that uh, maybe you missed getting to ask one of our guests, or maybe it was something that wasn't on topic with one of our shows during the course of the month. So it's really your your big chance to ask any questions you have about real estate investing or make comments about the market or tell us topics you'd like to hear whatever you would like in the greater Cincinnati area the number is 513-772-9658 
outside the greater Cincinnati area, it's toll-free, 877-772-9658. question from Fred, who is in Pahrumpf. I don't know how to pronounce that. Pahrumpf? Pahrumpf? Nevada. Uh, Utah. Um, Vina, I have a new Roth IRA that I can only put a couple thousand dollars in right now. I'm also in the busy season working a full-time job. What can I realistically start investing in to get a, a good return with such a small amount and grow my IRA? That is a very interesting question, and it is too bad that you are so far away from Cincinnati Rhea because... Uh, this workshop that's coming up on Saturday, that is one of the topics, is what do you do with a little IRA, an IRA that's got just a few thousand dollars in it, not enough to like buy and, per- and fix an entire property. I would say that um, in general, the thing that you are going to do in real estate to grow that IRA from a little one into a big one is going to have something to do with optioning properties using your IRA. That could take the form of a true wholesale flip if you go out and find a really ugly junker property that someone wants to sell for. I'm making up numbers here because I don't know what the numbers are in your market, but you can put it under contract for 17 with $1,000 earnest money out of your IRA and you can flip it to another investor for 24. Well, now you have $7,000 more in your IRA after that property flips. Um, you can also do the same thing with notes and mortgages. You can option notes and mortgages and turn around and wholesale them effectively uh, with your IRA. You could put an option on a property, and uh, if it's, a, if it's a, a, a property that you'd like to exercise the option on much further down the road, five or ten years up the road, you, could, you can use your IRA money to option it now, and you can sell the option itself if that has some value. So, I mean, basically, Fred, your, your question here is... Uh, it, we could talk about it all day long, but let me let me put the thought in your head and have you go back and look at some of our shows that, that are on iTunes uh, to get more specific information about how to do these things. It's going to be some kind of option where you control can control a lot of property with a little bit of money you have in your IRA. So... I hate, I hate leaving questions like that incomplete, but literally I could talk about that for the next eight hours. <laughs> it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're going to take a quick break and invite you to send your questions via askvina.com or give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, which means there is no show without your questions. So if you're sitting there going, oh, my question's stupid. People laugh at me even though they can't see me and don't know who I am and I could use a fake name for all they know. Uh, Number one, trust me if you've got it. Other people got it. Number two, you don't ask questions. There's no show. Give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. You can also send an email by going to askvina.com. I have both a comment and a question here from Marty in Seattle, who, by the way, says it's 45 degrees and overcast in Seattle. Why is it every listener from Seattle gives us weather reports? It, It might be because 
the weather always seems to be better there than it is here. I don't know. But uh, first of all, he has some additional advice for Mike, the first caller who was asking about how to get a refinance loan on a $300,000 house that wasn't going to qualify conventionally. Uh, Marty says, look for a private lender, look for and find private money. And that that is another option, Mike. It's one that I didn't get into because um, the search for private money is usually i mean it takes it takes a while to develop a private lender and most people don't bother to do that when there are these other options around unless they are full-time real estate investors who are going to consistently need private money not for one on one deal marty goes on to say I am mailing postcards to potential sellers. When they call me, I have a list of questions I need to know in order to generate something, because what it says is in order to generate I am, uh, in order to generate an offer maybe is what that means. Could you give me some suggestions for soft, open-ended questions I can ask and how to build rapport with the caller? Uh, Well, the biggest part of building rapport with sellers, Marty, is to understand that if they are in fact potential sellers, they are looking for help. They have an issue, they have a problem with their property, and they are looking to you to solve the problem. Now that won't actually be most of the people who call you. Most of the people who call you, they don't really have a problem. They have a house they'd like to sell, but they're not in a hurry to do it. The house is not in bad condition. They're not that motivated. And no amount of rapport that you can build with them is going to cause them to want to sell at the price or under the terms uh, that you had hoped to purchase the property. The other, say, 25% who are in fact seriously motivated, Uh, your job is to get get the information you need to see if and how you can help them. Unfortunately, there are folks who are in situations that are just impossible for you to solve. You know, folks who have huge loans on properties that are worth significantly less and are, are four days from foreclosure and there's no way to do a, a a short sale. I mean, there's, there's, there, there are problems out there that you cannot solve, but in order to find out whether you can solve them, you do need to have open communication with these sellers, which goes back to why you want to build rapport. Open-ended questions that I like to ask folks are things like, okay, well, so, so tell me about the situation. What's going on with this property? What's the problem? And then let them talk and they will, some of them will go straight to talking about the situation. I'm getting a divorce. I inherited the property, whatever. Some of them will go straight to talking about the property and the problems with that. It's, uh, I, the basement won't stop leaking and I can't afford to fix it, you know, whatever the issue may be. Most people, I find that if you ask, if you ask that question, uh, they will tell you 80% of what you need to know without you asking another question. Now, as they are talking, you certainly want to both be writing down what they're saying and also responding to what they're saying, particularly the part of it that is less technical and more emotional. I mean, if someone says, well, my, my mother passed away and back in March and I inherited the property, your next question is not going to be how many bedrooms does it have, right? The next thing you're going to say is going to be, oh, I'm so sorry. Was it unexpected? Was she older? Uh, did you grow up in this property? You know, have a conversation with them about what has happened to them 
because although they're calling you about the house, that is, of course, the main thing on their minds. Uh, in in other kinds of situations, you know, look for their sources of pain when they say things like, I'm just burned out because I've had three consecutive tenants in this property. And every time I, I've had to evict all three of them, and every time I've had to do $5,000 turnovers, and I'm just not going to do another $5,000 turnover. You want to empathize with that, right? Yeah, I don't know why people can't take care of their houses the way that the way that you and I would take care of our houses. It's really, it's really tough dealing with those tenants. So what did they do to it this time? Right? So don't ignore the fact that you're talking to a person who is in some sort of pain. Respond to that as best you can without, I mean, you don't want to start crying along with them or go all overboard with it or something like that. But, um, you know, the rapport building, you know, what, 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 what makes you like somebody? They're nice to you. They seem to agree with you and hold many of the same opinions you do, that you build rapport by doing the same thing with your sellers. Now, let me warn you, because as soon as I said that, something something popped into my mind that uh, you don't want to do. Um, you don't want to feel the same way as anybody who's on the phone with you who is uh, racist, sexist, classist, etc. You don't want to, you don't want to uh, get into discussions with people that would... Uh, get you into fair housing trouble or be, you know, I don't know, somehow immoral or something of that nature. But, you know, other sorts of things, yes, you want to be agreeable. So thank you for your question, Marty, and it's been a long time. Thanks for listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Uh, Scott in St. Paul, Minnesota says, I need your insight and maybe encouragement. I was gung-ho on real estate and wholesaling until this year when I think I succumbed to the gloom in the economy and especially the dismal dropping resale values. Are things as bad as they seem for making money in real estate? How much has your strategy, specifically in wholesaling, changed since 2009 or 10? Are your buyers mainly rehabbers or landlords? How much has changed in your recommendations for a shoestring startup in a wholesale business? Wow, Scott. You just hit a nail on a head that I don't even think you knew you were aiming at there. Um, I've had this conversation four or five times in the past month with full-time investors, some of whom, well, in one case, the guy had been in business longer than I have, like 30 years this guy's been in the business, about the gloom in the real estate market and how and how it affects us even when we don't quite know it's affecting us and what that does to our um, motivation to get out there and rehab that property or rent that property or try and put something under contract and so on. And most of the people that I've had this conversation with, the conversation was along the lines of that happened to me in 2008 or 2009 and I spent the entire year wondering if I was ever going to be able to make money in real estate again and feeling like an idiot and a failure and how could I have been doing this for a decade and now I can't seem to make any money at it but that they had subsequently overcome that by taking a hard look at what they were doing versus what the market was demanding and that you you asked the question how has my wholesaling business changed and how are how are things different? Uh, and the answer is that what you're describing happened to me in 2008. I spent the entire year seemingly every deal I did was a huge uphill climb. It was 
oh my gosh, you know, instead of being instead of being able to call three potential buyers and sell a property, I would have to call 23 and it would take, it used to take like seven or eight days. And then all of a sudden it was taking 30 or 45 days and I was having to close these deals. And I, and I, I couldn't figure out, you know, what is, is, is it over? You know, is, is the thing that I've been doing for the last 20 years over and what it took to get past that was to look at the stuff that I was doing habitually because I had always done it that way and it was, in my mind, the correct way to do things and look at what the market was actually asking for and change to that, okay? So how has my business changed in the past few years? Uh, Number one, we are selling a lot more properties to landlords. Now, there are still retail buyers out there there are still folks who are by by which i mean retailer buyers people who are buying a property for the purpose of fixing it and selling it but those folks are not who they used to be it used to be that i had a list of four or five people like that that would buy every good retail deal i had they would buy every single four or five people if i had a hundred deals they would buy every single one of them over the course of a year because they were doing four five six projects at the same time because they were going to resell on the back end the current retail buyers are doing one deal at a time, maybe two, maybe as they get close to the end of one project, they will buy a second one, but then they're not going to buy a third one. Okay. So instead of having to have five people to absorb every potential retail deal we have, we we built that part of our buyers list up so that we have 35 or 40 people, because if each one of them is only going to buy one, two, three, maybe four deals this year, we got to have more of them in order to to sell the same number of deals. At the same time, landlords are a much bigger part of our wholesale business than they used to be. Prices have gotten to be such that there's a lot of properties out there that you can buy for X dollars, fix up for Y dollars, and then have cash flow on that property of $300 a month, $400 a month. There's also some new landlord buyers in the market, people who don't want to do twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars worth of work. They want to do ten or fifteen thousand dollars worth of work. They're willing to settle for a lot less cash flow, but they want a better neighborhood. And this was all this was all through just basically going out to the to the to the buyers and to the RIA meetings and so on, just asking people what are you looking for and then finding that thing for them. So <clears throat> yes, our, our business has changed a lot. Particularly since 2009, it continues to change uh, as as time passes. But here's the good news. At the end of this year, I am going to have wholesaled more houses in 2011 than I have in any prior year in my entire real estate career. And I'm hearing a lot of people say that. I'm hearing a lot of people say, uh, you know, the properties that I bought in 2011, my rentals are, are more profitable than any other rental I've ever bought in previous years. The the retail deal deals that I'm doing, you know, I'm 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 buying them right now. I'm building the costs in up front like I should have back when the market was hot, but it didn't really matter that much because it was going to sell in three days and who cared. Uh, and although I may be making less per deal, I'm able to do more deals because I'm more efficient at it. You need to stop being inside your own head for a while. Scott, you need to go out and talk to some people in your market, preferably, who are doing business and who have gotten past the doom and gloom thing, because no question, 
it, it will take the gung-ho right out of you when you get into that place. And um, I spent the better part of a year there. I just, you know, I, and I, I'm sitting around thinking, if I don't do real estate, what am I going to do? I mean, I haven't had a job since like 1989. And who would hire me? Seriously, like, like, what am I qualified to do? And and who would hire somebody with a twenty year gap in their in their work history? And oh, by the way, who thought they could do everything better than their boss could anyway? So you know, I kind of had to get over it, and you will get over it too. But you, you need to go talk to some people who are actually making this work. It's Q and A day here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. We got about I don't know seven minutes left in the show. If you have a quick question, you can give us a call at 772-9658 or outside the greater Cincinnati area at 877-772-9658. Uh, you can also send us an email, as did Scott and Steph and Marty and a lot of our other folks. Um, you can send us an email by going to askvina.com. A question here from JC in Las Vegas. Vina, I have a recently rehabbed vacant rental house for which I'm getting numerous inquiries, numerous showings, but few applications, especially from people who would qualify. How do I get more of those people who like the house and are serious to give me an application? Um, Interesting question, JC. And again, it's echoing a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with a very experienced investor who's been renting properties for many, many years and keeps keeps key performance indicators, which are important to keep if you're going to stay in business. And he says he has gone from showing a property two to three times in order to get somebody not only applying but moving in to showing it 20 to 25 times. And that what he is hearing from the folks to whom he is showing the property is, well, we really like it, and it's the best thing we've seen, but we have a list of six other houses to go see. In other words, the tenants feel as if there might be a better deal out there. There might be some landlord who is uh, has houses just as good, but maybe is willing to negotiate on the rent or something of that nature. The problem is, it's unlikely that they are going to see something better than your recently rehabbed rental house, because many of the rental houses that are on the market right now, as you probably well know, uh, are not especially attractive. They've got a lot of wear and tear. They've got a lot of deferred maintenance. Yeah, they may be cheaper, but they're not going to be the quality that you have put out there on the market. So the question for you is, what could you say to these folks? And you, whatever you say, you need to say to all of them, fair housing again, that would encourage them to put in an application right now. Now, the first thing that comes to mind is, I understand, and by the way, you should you should question these people and ask them, you know, so you like the house, are you going to put in an application? Why not? So see if, see if you're getting the same response of, I've got bunches of other properties to see. But what could you offer them right now to put in an application right now? One thing that you could certainly say is, if you really like this house, you should put an application in right now, even though you are going to look at these other six or seven houses, because I don't want you to lose out on this one when you see that the other six or seven houses are not as nice as this one, and that uh, the landlord isn't going to be as responsive to your maintenance requests, etc. The other thing that you might want to put out there is some sort of a, 
limited time offer. Some kind of a deal that they have to apply immediately in order to get. And one suggestion would be something like, uh, well, Mr. Potential Tenant, um, the owner, I hope you haven't told them you're the owner, the owner is on me to get this thing rented by December 1st. So I'll tell you what, if you put in an application today, I can cut your deposit down to $99, or I can uh, I can get you a ceiling fan, or I can uh, give you $50 off the rent, or something, something like that, that has an explanation. That explanation was important. The owner says I have to do this by such and such a date, and that's why I'm offering you this. And you need to turn in the application right now in order to get that deal. So... That's my best suggestion to you. I will also tell you that the number one complaint that tenants who are moving have, the reason they're moving and the thing that they are most concerned about is lack of maintenance, lack of maintenance by the landlord. So if you can emphasize in your marketing or in person as you're showing your units and so on, that your boss the owner of the property, uh, does a wonderful job of maintaining properties and has a 48-hour maintenance guarantee. And that is actually going to sway some people. You know, I, I think most people would, would pay 25 bucks a month more for a unit if they knew that they were going to get their maintenance requests dealt with quickly. So that might be something you want to put out there as well. Bill in Bangor, Maine. I wonder if that's the first question we've ever gotten from Maine. Bangor, Maine says, how does a full-time real estate investor get healthcare coverage? Just wondering. Thanks for your show. Uh, Okay, Bill. um, What this full-time investor does is, uh, you you know those health savings accounts? You know those things where you're able to contribute money tax-free and then use that money for any kind of healthcare that you need? Um, did you know those can be self-directed like a self-directed IRA? And so you can make a contribution to it and then flip properties and build it up very quickly to where you have quite a bit of money in it. Now, the, the thing, the trick is with these things, you do have to carry an insurance policy, but what you have to carry is a high deductible policy. Uh, one of these, one of these policies that first $10,000 worth of healthcare each year is on you and it only kicks in if something like you know, you're know you in a car accident, you need an operation, you have a heart attack. At that point, it starts, it starts paying, it starts paying you so or it starts paying for your medical care. But those policies are quite a bit less expensive than the policies that you're thinking of where you have a $5 copay on drugs and so on. Uh, but if you had $40,000 in your health savings account, would you care if you had a $10 copay on your drugs? Um, so they fund it through real estate, I guess, is the, the short story. <laughs> and thank you for your question. Uh, appreciate that. And we are finished for the day. So uh, thank you to all the folks who helped make question and answer day, uh, hopefully an interesting day for everybody. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.